Welcome to WGWG.org special event live at Leatherwood's interview podcast with Dan X Pageant and Jerry Edmondson and Sons here on WGWG.org. We wanted to make sure you had a, some entertaining podcasts. This one is some great stories, a live interview with Dan Pageant and a Jerry Edmondson and my father, Steve Leatherwood. I'm JT Leatherwood, hoping you enjoy this podcast and come back and see us for more events later. Thank you very much. Well, you want to you pick a little something just to start out with, and then we'll... Uh... Let's see, what is today? This is the 17th of December. Let me just say how this got started so I can have it on my tape there. About two or three weeks ago, I guess, uh, Jerry said that we ought to write some stuff down and get some stuff recorded, and so here we are to do it. Uh, we're going to see if we can't make uh, some uh, a record of something, uh, kind of history here, some stories, and uh, maybe even a little music or something. Uh, hopefully a whole lot of stories. That's what we're looking for about uh, sh bluegrass and uh, Shelby, North Carolina and Cleveland County and this area of the country. So we're going to try to put something down here and, and record this stuff. And then we're going to, I don't know what we're going to do with it. Once we get it done, we're going to put it together in some kind of a uh, a book or something so we'll do that so um, maybe we can just do a little something to kind of start one off here y'all got two banjos and a guitar and a bass and a mandolin a partial part of a mandolin uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, got several good musicians up here and then me but uh, anyway I won't be here to help out if I can um, you want to you want to pick something right quick and then we'll think of a story What you got? You won't want to do one, Dan? Dan, if you'll do something. Let's see. I, I, I forgot to, uh, who all we, uh, to say who all we had here, didn't I? Let's just go around and just say your name so we'll have you. How about telling us your birthday, too, just so we'll know that. Uh, my name's Jerry Edmondson. I, my birthday is 62440. 40, 1940. Right. That's a good year. <laughs> My name is Brian Edmondson, and I was born on July 26, 1975. 75. you got to remember that now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alex Padgett. I was born uh, August 11, 1937. Woo. Getting on back there. 37. Retired this year, didn't you? Or was that? Retired last year. Last year. Boy, I tell you, sneaked up on me there. All right. We got one more. Steve Edmondson. Oh, Steve Edmondson. Steve Edmondson, June the 17th, 1970. All right. And uh, I'm Steve Leatherwood, I guess. Let's see, February the 1st, 1948. So I'm somewhere in the midst there. I don't know where that's at. So. All righty. Well, let's see. You got one we can pick here? Start something down and we'll fall in with you. Yeah. I'll try to take a break on it, too. Just what something. you want to do? We'll try a little Cripple Creek, I guess. Thank you. 
Now, if we had anybody to pick Mandolin, it would be okay, wouldn't we? Oh, goodness. One of the reasons we wanted to get together is hear some of these old stories. Um, and I don't know where to start exactly on that, but uh, we were talking about some things up here. Uh, a lot of names were coming up, uh, Chubby Wise and all sorts of guys. Uh, Jerry, you want to just start us off with something? Uh, you, you were telling me that uh, bluegrass started right here in Shelby, North Carolina, as far as you're concerned. I don't know. Well, we decided maybe some people might disagree with that, but you sort of think that, don't you? Well, I, I feel like it did. <coughs> you know, uh, I was born in 1940, and my earliest recollection is about when I was about three years old. There was a group of boys used to get on the front porch across from our house there in the Lily Mill village. And uh, I found out later on, talking to Hubert Davis and some of the other boys around, that uh, that was the number three ramblers. Uh, Kermit, Poo uh, Kermit uh, McSwain and uh, Buford Hambrick and uh, the boy playing a tin tub with a string in it was <laughs> Don Gibson. Don Gibson. And Don went on, you know, to become yeah, one of the, the greatest songwriters and uh, country singers in the business. And uh, I had an uncle who played the guitar. He worked at the mill, and so did Earl Scruggs at that time. And they they started playing with Zeke and Wiley Morris. The Morris brothers had a radio show in Spartanburg. And uh, they wrote such songs as Solid Dog Blues and Somebody Loves You, Darling, which Jim and Jesse recorded. And uh, some of the other great old bluegrass songs, oh. you know. And that was right around what that time? Was, that was in the mid-40s. Mid-40s. Yeah. And uh, Sort of South Shelby there or something, wasn't it? Was it kinda, South Shelby. Uh, yeah, kind of a hotbed of bluegrass yeah. in there, wasn't it? And there were other people around Shelby that were playing music at that time. Uh, Howard and... Uh, uh, McCraw, the McCraw brothers uh, were playing music, picking a banjo and uh, guitar and singing. And uh, I had some first cousins who had a program on WOHS in Shelby. They were playing bluegrass at that time. Uh, Happy Richards and uh, Junior Fagin. And, uh, and uh, one of the world famous bar hoppers was from right over in the Dover Mill community there. Shannon Grayson. Who's, who's that name? Shannon Grayson. Shannon Grayson from Briarhoppers. Yeah, he was a manager player for the Briarhoppers. And so uh, Bill Monroe at that time was playing. You know, I had been playing since in the 30s when uh, he and his brother were playing together. And, and uh, they were using mostly just the mandolin and the guitar. and. Uh, then they started having a fuller band, but uh, Jim Shoemaker had started playing with Bill, and he is the one that knew Earl Scruggs and introduced him to Bill Monroe, and Bill gave him a job. Yeah. And for the first time, that's about 1947, for the first time, the country heard what a five-string banjo was supposed to sound like. <laughs> Before that, they had uh, Bill Monroe was using string bean for his manual. String bean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember string bean from the Opry uh, yeah. back in there uh, quite a while back. It, so now, is that the time you were telling me that they took um, 
Earl up and just set him out to Knoxville. Or, and I said, you were telling me about that, yeah. weren't you, Dan? Is that? That's right. Uh, he used to be everywhere that Earl went. His mother went with him. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it was Pee Wee Davis and uh, Grady Wilkie and Earl's mother that took him to Tennessee. And uh, he had a suitcase in one hand and banjo in the other. I think it was Knoxville they took him to, and they set him out on the street. And he said Earl would take a few steps and look back towards them like he wanted to get back in the car and come back home. And Pee Wee told him, said, we better get out of here. Said he's going to be wanting to get back in the car. And said they drove off and left him. <laughs> left him standing there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, Pee Wee Davis. I used to go down there and Pee Wee and Hubert and play a half a day at their house there at Lily Mill, behind Lily Mill. Yeah, now that's where uh, Jerry's talking about, kind of mm -hmm. in that same. Yeah, they were about the biggest thing happening in Shelby. Uh, Hubert had already recorded Bill Monroe on, I believe he did Roanoke on the, the record. He'd already recorded, and he had his own records out with D-tuners and all in the, uh, along about 1954, 53, 54. He'd already recorded on 78 RPM had his own records and everything out. So he was, that's all he ever intended to do, all he ever did. And he uh, he went to Florida for a while and the IRS got after him. So he went to Nashville and he spent the rest of his time in Nashville. <laughs> he hit out in Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> or something. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it seems like there was a, and now there's a, there's a group there that the Lily Mill and then there was some more folks that we were talking about up toward Lincoln County on that end of the county too. Uh, who are we? Who are we thinking about in that sort of time frame there? That was well, of course, Snuffy Jenkins Snuffy. was one of the uh, pioneers of the three finger style playing, and yeah. so uh, Smith Hammett too. And they were from uh, Smith was from Cliffside, and, uh, and of course Snuffy was from Harris, North uh -huh. Carolina, which uh, on out toward Rutherford County there, yeah. kind of. And uh, so Earl uh, came along just about. He was a real youngster when they started playing, and I guess uh, he might have got some from them, but he had such a talent that he really took it and went places with it. I mean, he, he got to where he could really play good at an early age. Yeah. And uh, all up and down the neck, and nobody had ever played a banjo like that before because he was playing fiddle tunes from one end of the banjo to the other. Yeah. That's what it took, I guess. I I remember uh, Horace Scruggs telling me about how he and um, Earl would uh, work on their rhythm. They'd, uh, they'd start at the front of the house playing a song, and one would go around the house in one direction, and one would go the other one. And they'd meet at the back of the house and see if they're still at the same place in a song. That's right. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was a pretty, uh, pretty interesting little tale. But he said that's how they would practice. They'd try to keep rhythm walking around the house, and yeah. if they was in the same place when they got to the back of the house, that there's, uh, he's doing pretty good. Back at that time, Earl was a fiddle player. He's still a good fiddle player. Mm -hmm. And uh, Junie was a banjo player and Horace the guitar. Yeah. And uh, I met Horace when I was just just a kid. I don't know. He found where I lived. I was not over 10, 12 years old. Drove up in a 46 Ford Coupe with his guitar and wanted him to play some. And I'd known him ever since. Uh, that was... Uh, back in the old days and Horace told me one time they were sitting at home and he was sitting in the room there by the 
by the fire and Earl came through with his banjo, right, said he had a mad look on his face. Went in the room and slammed the door behind him. Said he was in there a couple hours and said he opened the door and had a big smile on his face and he said, I've got it, I've got it. <laughs> and Horace said, you've got what? He said, I've got the three finger roll. And said, sure enough, he did have. I believe the song was Rubin. But Earl's been influenced by a lot of the old timers. Uh, Mac Crow was one from Maiden, North Carolina. But he was in my area more than he was at home, I think, because he played trade day and he always had a, a big uh, line of Gibson banjos, old Gibson master tones, and uh, sold them, traded, and, and played. Uh, he was, I think he was an Indian, part Indian. Indian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a big influence. Some of the early people, Donnie Root from Cliffside, met him about 1950. And uh, he picked a three-finger style. It's not like we play. He played all the strings with both fingers. Sort of like a... a that almost sort almost of a claw hammer, kind of a mix or something. Right. Lieben Rogers Sr., who was uh, the Rogers Cadillac Pontiac's father, was... Uh, an early three-finger picker that I saw. George Brooks, who was the brother of Rex Brooks that got killed here at uh, Swainsville. A uh, car pulled out in front of him. He, Rex is mentioned in the Earl Scruggs book. Uh, uh, some of the old-timers, uh, got too many to talk about, really, Steve. We've got about 75, I think. You know, there's a lot of them, and uh, I guess that's what Jerry and I were saying the other day is that we need to write some of this down. You were telling me you had a notebook that uh, you kind of written a little package. I got about 75 of the old timers. A little uh, page about or something and um, so we're going to try to maybe get a Xerox copy of that and kind of lay it back in the resources here. Um, I don't know what we'll eventually turn out with this thing but we're going to try to put something together here with some of these names and and uh, certainly don't want to see this, uh, this disappear because this piece of history and the more I talked to Jerry the, the he came in a couple times there and and he just kept bringing in old uh, albums, old uh, vinyl records, and and uh, back in the, well, the, you know, not that old, old, but you know, 25, 30, 40 year old records. That's pretty old. Yeah. And uh, getting back in the the you know, 75s and the, I believe that last one you brought in was in the 50s. There, 58. There was a 58 session on it, and a 54 session or something like that. And uh, just don't want to lose sight of that stuff. Sometimes things like that begin to disappear after a while. And mm -hmm. And um, we don't want to lose that if we can help it. So we're going to try to work out some kind of deal here to, to keep some of this alive. What else um, What else you remember? You look like you had something on the tip of your tongue there, Jerry. Well, no. Um, I never had intentions of playing bluegrass music when you I was You told young. me that. Yeah, I remember you telling me. I went all the way through school. Uh, my mother had always said, I want you to play a five-string banjo. <laughs> and the, w the only instrument we had in the house was a piano. And I knew I had some music in me because I would get up to the piano and play songs, you know. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I believe I heard one of those boys the picking the piano there a minute ago. Yeah. <laughs> about the time I graduated from high school, she bought me a little old silver tone banjo, and I started working on that thing, and it just seemed to come natural. And uh, before long, I was picking fairly good. Yeah. That was from Sears, wasn't it? I yeah, guess. from it? Sears. Yeah. yeah, they put out a lot of good instruments. Eh? Well, it <laughs> put out a lot of instruments. Let's say. 
before long, I felt like I needed something better, and I yeah. came up to Shelby to the Gibson dealer, and I won't call it a name, but uh, I said, uh, how much is that Gibson banjo you got in the showcase there? He said, son, that's just a little out of your line. <laughs> and he wouldn't let me touch we'll, it. Wouldn't let you fool with it. So I went home, and I thought about it for a couple of days, and I, I came back up there, and I bought it and paid cash for it. Bought it from the man that wouldn't yeah. let me see it. Yeah, you say I'll take that. Lay cash on the barrel head. I huh? said I can't be insulted. Yeah, <laughs> so I remember my first banjo. I was up there yesterday in Forest City. Uh, it was a jewelry and loan place, and the banjo was hanging up in the window. And uh, for I don't know for what reason I wanted a banjo, so I I had a nice guitar. Got cheated pretty bad. Paid a little boot too, and uh, I think I paid ten dollars for my <laughs> guitar and. I got it, and uh, then uh, I probably played with a couple gears and finally got picking with a thumb and one finger. And uh, then I found out about the three-finger style, and I tried to play the three-finger, and a while I couldn't play either way. My dad said to me, he said, now you're really in a mess. So you can't play <laughs> The old way, like you did with the thumb, one <laughs> finger, and you can't way. play with two <laughs> fingers and a thumb, so you're in a mess, and I was there for a while. Yeah. And then you got it figured out somehow. We had uh, several of our old-timers there in the community that uh, used to have an, a neighbor. He was some of our kin folks lived across the creek. He would walk over and help my dad and grandfather plow with the old mule, and at lunchtime they'd take an hour off, and he would do the uh while he was resting he would play the banjo for me but he had a he had a funny style and i finally learned it after he was dead and gone but it, i tried for eight years to learn it it's a drop thumb style where the thumb goes from the thumb string to the second back and forth while your hands in the air moving so it turned into a quite a hassle before I learned how to play it and something like this. Finally, yeah. after eight years, I finally learned that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is an interesting. Ba the banjo's got all sorts of pick styles, that's for sure, hasn't it? That's a, that's a, it's a, probably one of the, the most unique instruments, I guess. In the, in the bluegrass business is the banjo. One of the first uh, uh, different styles that I saw, Bobby Thompson, we used to play on the Farmer Gray Show, uh, Channel 7 television. Bobby would come around and, and watch the show and drink coffee, and one day he told me, said, come out here to the car, said, I want to show you what I'm working on. Driving an old, I believe it's a 58 Chrysler uh, Fire Dome. Got in the back seat and pulled his banjo out he was working on the chromatic style. Of course, Bill Keith had it, but neither one knew the other one had it. And uh, then he went on with uh, Carl's story and then went on to do the hee-haw thing in Nashville and RCA with, uh, with Chet Atkins and so forth. And that was who now? That was That's Bobby Thompson. Bobby Thompson. Yeah, he was in the inventor, as far as this part of the country, in the fiddle note or chromatic style. Chromatic style, Goodness. And a lot of that was happening right here. I think sometimes people think um, maybe bluegrass and stuff started 
off out in Nashville or something, but a lot of the folks that were in Nashville came from here, I think. Is that what, that's kind of what you were saying, wasn't it, Jerry, that a lot of our folks kind of went out there, a lot of folks from this area. Yeah, they, they really did. And a lot of the early recordings were done here in North Carolina. Here in Charlotte, uh, yeah. Bill Monroe, Bill Monroe did mm -hmm. a lot of his recording in Charlotte. Uh, rather than Nashville, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, because uh, people just couldn't afford to pick up and go to New York or Chicago or wherever they had to go to record for RCA or Columbia yeah. or anything like that. So they had a label called Bluebird that would go out and set up a, a little recording session with whoever, the Blue Sky yeah. Boys. Yeah, go out to your house or something. Yeah, Bill Monroe out, yeah. or, or whoever, uh, the Carter family, Jimmy Rogers, all that was recorded uh, where they lived uh -huh. rather than in Nashville or in Chicago or somewhere. Sure, yeah. Tra travel was a whole lot harder. I, I remember my, you know, grandmothers and stuff talking about how, how hard it was, I mean, to get anywhere. Yeah. Uh, Dottie's grandmother told us about you know, moving from one place to other in covered wagon pulled by horses, you oh, know, yeah. and things like that. I mean, so we're not talking about a lot later than that in some ways. Uh, people, people didn't just hop in a car and drive several hundred miles to get anywhere. Um, so, right. yeah, they, so that bluebird would come out and, and record you right there at your house or, or somewhere. Yeah. In a church or something like that. They'd get you in a, in a group and, and record you right there where you live. Yeah. Bring all their stuff. This is the center of all five-string banjo playing uh, in the world right here. Uh, where I, from where I live, six or eight miles to the west, there's Snuffy Jenkins. Mm -hmm. And six or eight miles to the uh, west was uh, Earl Scruggs. And, of course, all those pickers. And then there in Spartanburg was Don Reno and Buck Trent and Bobby Thompson and all those guys. So, you know, it's, it's really where it got started. <laughs> uh, before that, you had Junie Scruggs. Uh, oh, there's various uh, local pickers here that were picking three-finger style uh, back in the uh, 20s and 30s. And Snaffy I met when I was just, uh, but I think before I ever started playing, I was six or eight years old. My dad knew him, and uh, they played at Oakland School one time. He had just bought a new Gibson Master Tone banjo. Well, it wasn't you. It's a, bought it at a pawn shop for forty dollars, <laughs> and uh, it was it was in a little first grade uh, classroom with it laid on a little table, had it open, and my dad took me to the show that night. And later on, Hank Jr. offered him forty thousand dollars for it. He's gonna wow. fly into Columbia on the airplane, pick it up. Something came up. He didn't make it, and he told Snoopy. He said. Uh, I'll be in next week, Snuffy. I can't make it, so Snuffy backed out on him. When he said, yeah. "I've played that banjo many times," uh, Snuffy used to come to my house when he'd come up from Columbia to Harris, and then when I'd go to Columbia, I had a friend down there. We'd go over to his house, played many, many a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, that's uh, not the one with the green neck, is it? Is the old Walnut. Uh, is that the pre-war Gibson Masterton? Is that that old? Um, Seems like I've seen that one around somewhere. It's still around, isn't it? Is it? Oh, yeah. Uh, Toby, his son, I guess, has Toby. got it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Phil Jenkins has got uh, one of his old banjos, too, I believe. That belonged to Hoke. That's the one that Hoke uh, owned. Uh, yeah. Boy, those old instruments, uh, there's, there's some. Uh, now, the, the five-string, actually, uh, got
got added along in here in this area, I guess, too, didn't it? it most of them were tenor banjos oh, to yeah. start out with four string. And uh, where did that come <laughs> from? Any well, the Gibson Company was putting out tenor banjos, and they, uh, in their catalog, they didn't show a five string. They just said also available in five string or plectrum mm -hmm. banjo. But the catalog in 1925 to 30 so only showed a tenor banjo. Only showed banjo. four strings, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, nobody knew what to do with that fifth string, maybe. Well, <laughs> it was not popular then, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, the tenor banjo was popular in Dixieland music and stuff like that, and down in New Orleans, and sure. and in big bands, some. And uh, But the five-string just hadn't caught on real good yet. Yeah. But like it started, started getting in there pretty, pretty soon, didn't it? Yeah, in the yeah. 40s, it started catching on. When Earl Scruggs took it to the Grand Ole Opry, and uh, that's when it really started to grow, and they started having to put out a lot of five-string banjos then. Yeah. You know, you you mentioned a couple of these early uh, early groups, the Briar Hoppers. What what year are we talking about there? Well, Briar Hoppers, I guess, in the thirties. Thirties and uh, the forties. I I remember seeing them on TV uh, when when they started having TV. Right. Uh, WBTV yeah. in Charlotte, and uh, they were on. And uh, I remember getting to see Arthur Smith, you know. On yeah, w Arthur Smith was on WBTV when I was bored. Uh, yeah. That was, you know, the the early fifties there, seeing Arthur Smith. And the well, you know, Don Reno was with Arthur Smith for yeah. quite a while. Yeah, so I, we saw them from, from uh, there. Uh, WLOS, I guess he played on Asheville up there, Channel 13, so yeah. too. And uh, so, who else was around? What other bands were along in there? I know your group uh, went the, the the Bluegrass Tar Heels. In fact, that was a great story. Uh, tell tell me a little about that. That the Bluegrass Tar Well, we got together. It was about uh, 1969 when we first got together as as the Bluegrass Tar Heels. Yeah. That's not what we called ourselves because That's right, yeah. we didn't really have a name for the band yet. But we started, uh, we knew we had something that sounded pretty good, so we we started bugging uh, Roy Martin and some of the people that were putting on festivals then. You know, the festival started in 1965, and by 70, they were, there was a lot of them springing up all over the place. And uh, so uh, he'd let us come and play maybe the supper break or something like that, you know, for no money, but just for the exposure. <laughs> and, uh, a lot of bluegrass was paid and for we, no money. And we met uh, <laughs> Bill Monroe and Ralph Stanley and a lot of the groups, you know, by doing that. And uh, then one uh, uh, Saturday night, we won a little contest down at Rock Hill. And Bill Price at that time was was playing some around here and he had played with Bill Monroe before and the Osborne brothers and Jimmy Martin and some of the other groups you know and he uh he said I want you to go to Nashville me and back me up on Ernest Herb's record shop he said I've got to play it on a Saturday night and uh so we went up there with him and Bill Monroe was hosting the show that night and uh he said uh we didn't know at that time that they didn't get along real well. <coughs> you know, they, Bill Monroe and uh, Bill Monroe and Bill Price and Bill didn't Price, get along yeah. too well. And after we played, <coughs> Bill Monroe said, 
meet me down at Lineberger's restaurant. I want to talk to you boys. <laughs> so we, uh, so we Bill, Bill asked you to meet him, yeah. We went on down there, and he came down, he and Joe Stewart, and they came over to our table, and he said, I'm going to book you boys at Bean Blossom this year. He said, but you need to get you a good name for your band. We said, well, you just give us a name, and that's what it'll be. And he thought for a minute, and he said, how about uh, Bluegrass Tar Heels? We said, well, that's a good name. Well, that's yeah. what we use. Yeah. And yeah so, I was thinking, uh, you told me, he said, uh, well, it ought to say something about what you do and where you're from. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's sort of what that name was. Yeah. yeah. And so here we go. In June, we, we went to Bean Blossom. Bean Blossom. There's the Bluegrass Tar Heels. And that, that was about. Uh, that was the biggest festival going. Oh, yeah. You know, absolutely. There's people from all over the country and, and from foreign countries there, too. And that was about, and, uh, would you say That 70? was 1970. 70. We also did our first album in 1970. Yeah. And uh, Now, who was, uh, tell, tell us who all was in that group. Well, that James was Randolph was our lead singer. Yeah. Robert McDougall was the tenor singer and mandolin player. Uh, Bob Ford was playing bass. Uh, Ricky Lee was playing the lead guitar. And I was playing the banjo. Ricky played with us a couple of years after that, and then he went with Ralph Stanley for several years as Ralph's lead guitar player. Yeah. So uh, we really started gaining popularity. We started playing a lot of festivals. Uh, I remember one year there, we played 26 festivals wow. that year. <laughs> That's uh, one every other week, right? Yeah. Uh, somehow, some and weeks we, too, I guess. We were in the studio quite a bit doing some uh, albums. And uh, which we're lucky enough to have a couple copies. There's some, oh some yeah, of that old stuff yeah. there. That yeah, there's they've been. Uh, we uh, eventually may years. try to get a piece or two along on here, uh, part of a recording or something. We try to revive some of that, re-release re it or something. I don't know yeah. what we'll do. Well, yet. you know, blues, bluegrass don't get old. No, that's you know that's a good thing about it. I guess that Fisher. bluegrass and gospel music it's sort of been the same yeah. all along. You can hear stuff that was recorded in the 30s and 40s, and it sounds so as good today as it did then, yeah. you know, and it's not old. It's uh, it's just good bluegrass. I guess that's what um, attracts so many people to that is, is that it is such a, it's a, it's a real classic sort of thing. I mean, you got your music from the 50s, and you got your beach music and all those things that have kind of popped up, but this, this kind of music has been around in this same form uh, since it began, I guess, yeah. for 60, 70 years almost, or whatever it is now. That's right. Um, and, and pretty much just in the same style and the same sound, uh, which is pretty unique when you talk about the field of music, because uh, certainly other kind of music, not, not that other music's not okay, but it, uh, other music certainly does change a lot, and, and this is, is something that's just been consistent all along. Well, bluegrass has changed some. You sure. Know. But ju just the traditional, the uh, yeah. Just the good traditional. Yeah, we got some new grass kind of stuff going on now, some kind of kind of fancy pickers, but uh, still pretty, pretty consistent stuff. Oh yeah. Well, what else? Uh, what else you remember? And uh, Dan, you were saying uh, you had uh, a big long list of people there. Uh, I remember you told me something about uh, going up, uh, picking some, and, and eating dinner or something uh, getting getting fed up there at uh was it at uh, horace's or scruggs at the scruggs place uh, 
Yeah, I spent a lot of my early years around Horace uh, and Earl, and I, I went to Wake Forest College in the, the 50s to make a medical doctor, and I attended about three years, and I uh, laid my music down for, for a whole year one time, and I was most miserable. I said, okay, if that's what I'm supposed to do, then I'll play the banjo. So I went to Nashville and uh, met the McCormick Brothers uh, Bluegrass Band. They were playing on the Grand Ole Opry, recording for Hickory Records. And they offered me a job. Uh, they had a radio show in Gallatin, Tennessee. And they offered me a job on the weekends. They split into three different bands. Curtis McPete that played with the with the Nashville Brass was one band. Haskell was with one band, and uh, Lloyd and myself had another group. We'd go out on Saturdays and play. So uh, Earl Scruggs evidently was listening in to Gallatin. He heard us on one day, and he uh, called me and wanted to know if I'd come up to WSM on Monday morning and bring my banjo. They'd be up there taping the early morning radio show. And I, so I went up, and they were finishing taping, and Earl put his banjo in the case over there, and he said, get your banjo out and play some of these boys. So I did, and he said, said how about, uh, would you be interested in working a couple of weeks? said, I've got to go uh, back to Shelby. He said, reckon you could do the shows for a couple of weeks? He said, if you will, I'll pay you good. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. So for the next two weeks, I was on with the Foggy Mountain Boys. We did a, show, a television show live every night and a personal appearance. And of course, the Grand Ole Opry on Saturday and and uh, back in late, late over Sunday and back out on Monday. And uh, from that time on, Earl would come to my place and pick me up every week on Saturday about uh, 11 o'clock on Saturday morning. We'd go out to his house and play records and with banjos and so forth. He took me in one time. He said, come back here. I said, I want to show you something. Went back in the bedroom. He got down, drug an old banjo out from under the bed. He said, this is the one I recorded Foggy Mountain Breakdown with. I said, play it some. So I picked some on it. But uh, uh, I was doing good. Earl was going to get me a job on the opera with the Wilbur and Stone Cooper. Elvis Presley uh, came along, and I told Earl, I said, I what I see is no use to stay here any longer, you know. So I came back home. Charlie Moore found out I was back, and he picked me up. I worked with him off of Channel 7, I think, for about three years. And we met a lot of people with mm -hmm. Charlie. Now, when you were doing that Opry thing there, man, that was, when was that now? What year was that? That was about 58. About 58. Oh. Uh, so for a couple of weeks in there, you were filling in for. Yeah, and I also met Bill Monroe and played with him at West Hendersonville High School, mm -hmm. and uh, then we played many times. And he he would book two weeks shows with Charlie Moore, and use us as his as his band, and uh, saw a lot of the country with with Bill Monroe too. Uh, Flat and Scruggs and Bill Monroe. That's about it as far as the tops. You know, I I've really. Uh, yeah. was lucky to be able to be with both of them. Fell in the right spot there. Mm. Yeah, I remember, I know you got a picture over there in the studio. 
you and Earl, I guess. Now, that was when he was in Shelby here sometime. Wasn't he? That was made. He was the Grand Marshal of the Christmas Parade one year here in yeah, Shelby. Shelby, wasn't he? And, uh, what year was that? Do you remember what? It's been some years back. It's been probably 20 years. I can uh, remember. You you was a pretty young-looking fella there. In that been picture. a while. I know you had long, curly hair, kind of. <laughs> that picture <laughs> or something kind of kind of looked a little different. But, uh, well, let's see. That's some that's some important stuff. We've we've got another guy or two that we mentioned, uh, kind of from this other side of the town over here, up around Waco, uh, with Chubby Wise and a couple of those guys up here. Let's the, Jerry tell us a little something about uh, some of those guys and and uh, Harold and uh, some of the the folks that were. Well, uh, Harold Murphy was one of my favorite people. He, sure, uh, Harold uh, was originally from Cherville. Yeah. He was a favorite of a lot of people I know in this in this area and supported bluegrass for many yeah many years. How uh, wrote a lot of songs, and uh, and many times he'd come to my house and he'd say, "Work me out a banjo break on this song, you know, that I've just wrote." And he'd he'd sing the song and I'd I'd work up a banjo. Then he'd go get somebody else to play the banjo because <laughs> <laughs> we didn't play in the same group, but yeah. uh, but we uh, played together quite a bit. Now now know, when we, are we talking about now? Long. Uh, long about long about in the seventies uh, and the early eighties, mm -hmm. and uh, I'd go play fiddlers conventions and things with him when he he played a lot of that. And uh, Terry Balcom was playing the fiddle uh -huh. at that time, and uh, Terry played the fiddle with him a lot. I played the banjo, and uh, we, uh, you know, Terry. Uh, is one of the best banjo players around sure. now. Sure. He has his own group. And uh, he's played with Doyle Lawson and uh, uh, some of the other groups, you know, third time out and so forth. And, mm -hmm. and so uh, there's a lot of mus musicians oh, yeah. around here that have really made it big in bluegrass. Right. And you were telling me, and Chubby Wise was from up around uh, the Waco, I mean, uh, Cherryville. Well, Chubby Anthony. Chubby Anthony, I'm yeah, sorry. Chubby, Chubby Anthony, Anthony played with uh, yeah. the Stanley Brothers. Yeah, Chubby Anthony. Back in the 50s. Yeah. And when they moved to Florida and played for Jim Walter Holmes down there, he moved to Florida, but he never did come back. He stayed in Florida. Uh -huh. and so he, he played with groups down there and, and, and was a tremendous fiddle player. Yeah. Chubby uh -huh. could play anything. He was from Cheryl. His dad's name was Woodrow. Uh -huh. And he was a, a bluegrass enthusiast, had all the pictures of the old 30s and 40s, Bill Monroe and Flat yeah. Scrubs and so forth on the wall. And uh, Chubby Anthony came from Boston. He was working with the Stanley Brothers. Uh, Charlie Moore called him. He came, joined our band. Uh, I worked with Chubby, I guess, about a year. Mm -hmm. He was an excellent fiddle player, excellent banjo player, mandolin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he could do it all. And that's all he did. Mm -hmm. And yeah. he was, uh, and right here in 1950, Probably 52 or 53, I started on WHS with Mike Lattimore. And we were on for six years. Don Gibson was still here at WHS. He had a program on Saturdays like at, uh, one of the programs was like lunchtime, the other was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday. But he was still here at WHS. Uh -huh. And I saw an interview with uh, uh, Kenny Baker, who was Bill Monroe's player. And Kenny was playing with Don Gibson uh, when they, came to him to ask him to play. He, he's playing with Don Gibson fiddle. 
so uh, yeah. he wasn't really playing bluegrass at the time. He was swinging, uh, swing and uh, different kinds of music with Don. Yeah. But uh, and he was still right here, and, and uh, Howard McCraw, he had already played Bill Monroe. He was uh, number three Ramblers. They were from just down the road here. And, uh, of course, Earl Scruggs, you know, and, and so forth. Uh, we had a visitor from Tokyo, Japan, uh, came over to my studio and visited um, the uh, Bluegrass Festival over at Cliffside. And he kept talking about Charlie Poole. Charlie Poole, he couldn't speak English. I said, Charlie Poole, who in the world is Charlie Poole? Came to find out that Charlie was from Greensboro area during the 20s, uh, had purchased a Gibson Mastertone or a Gibson banjo, was playing for the big shots of the mill. The big supervisors would have big parties and pay him and then uh, the depression hit and he lost his job, lost his banjo and everything, but uh, the people overseas are more knowledgeable of our history than we are ourselves. <laughs> yeah, we've, uh, it's been real interesting here. Uh, we have a website that uh, we have a lot of bluegrass on it, and we've been amazed. Uh, we get statistics back each month, and last, um, last month or so, I think we had a 169 hits from Japan uh, the the Japanese had logged onto our website to listen to some of the bluegrass clips and stuff we have, and, and from France and uh, Italy and other places like that. It's really interesting how how in how how tuned in they are, and the folks down in Australia mm-hmm. have been real interested in it too. Bluegrass so. is real big in Japan, and yeah. it has been for several years. I remember one time I went to Charlotte to pick up some albums that we had recorded, and uh, the man said, uh, "You see a stack of albums." was about six feet tall. He said, "All these are going to Japan." So. Uh, All right there. Yeah, I've I've heard that, and and it must be true because they they seem to really uh, click into <laughs> this uh, this website and, and listen to a lot of the band clips that we have. And, yeah. Um, got a there's a couple uh, bluegrass bands that are Japanese uh, groups yeah. that are hooked up to a little web ring that we have a, a ring of. Uh, websites there and uh, they've got Japanese names but kind of kind of an interesting um, thing how, how widespread this is in the, in the world actually what what were some um, other bands come check this everything gonna, yeah well okay Donnie says we need to do some checking there Dan's checking his notes uh, this guy's been itching to pick a little bit again anyway I know um, so uh, let's uh, you want to you want to pick something, man. Let me go listen to this just a little bit and see how how we're doing over there and and see see where we're at with the the recording thing. <laughs> Wake up, Brian. I don't know if I got one or not. Let me look and see here.
What's the microphone number there on your guitar, Mike? Uh, can you? Seven. Seven. Yeah. Oh, let's see. I'm gonna. I'm gonna stop.
I believe we're still recording back there. We're getting it. So it's uh, it's working. <laughs> oh, sounding good. We um, let's see. I don't know exactly where we are in the scheme of all this stuff here. It seems like uh, there was just a ton of stuff. I heard an interesting story last night. Uh, Jack Bingham over here was uh, sharing with us about the album cover uh, <laughs> for uh, Harold uh, Harold's uh, album there that uh, that you brought in the other day and said they worked real hard on that album, tried to get everything placed just right. <laughs> and uh, what was it that? Uh, let me let you tell what uh, what they finally figured out there is problem. <laughs> did you did you know? Did you hear about? The, the album cover there, I, I think he, he looked around and fiddled around, and uh, when he finally got it printed out, he, he realized that there was a, a tin can. It, it doesn't yeah. show a beer can <laughs> label, but but there's a beer can sticking up yeah, that's, in, uh, in that's the water the there in the, in the river there where he was perched on that rock. There was a big old can. Yeah, that's uh, the first thing he said when he brought me an album. He said, look at this thing. <laughs> And, uh, and that beer can it, right there the, the picture was taken right below my house there on Muddy Fork Creek where the shoals are. There's a lot of rocks and things. And Walter Vest took the picture. Yeah. And uh, when, he, when he came back and it was printed on the album, there was a can sticking. Sticking right there in the rocks. In the rocks, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it seems like that is the way things work out. You try your best to, to make things uh perfect and uh, the bottom line is that you know it's it's hard to get that done that's right there's always a misspelled word or a, uh, a something sticking up there but uh, i'm anxious to hear that album now that has on the has a, a bunch of, of of his stuff on there yeah um we're missing uh, one of our, our buddies today james uh, might want to just mention him um we're going to try to get up with him a little bit later on unfortunately he's uh, he's not doing well today that's but, right um, uh, he wrote carolina um oh carolina yeah james wrote oh carolina in 1970 and we recorded on the first album we did uh, with the bluegrass tar heels and that's probably one of the one of the most popular songs i guess um uh, uh, seems like everybody does that don't they well it's been recently recorded by some lady i i'm not sure who it was uh it's on a CD that was played on WFMX. We heard it, and she did, really did a good job on it. And of course, uh, uh, the New River Band has recorded it exactly yeah. recently on their new CD, and uh, they did a good job on it too. Oh, they did, yeah. Uh, it's a little different from the way we did it originally because we used twenty fiddles, you know, to kick it off with. And uh, who was playing the, the fiddle in? Uh, Joe Ellis was playing the fiddle. Joe's <coughs> brother uh, is the one that owned Ellis Lumber Company down here in South Shelby. Ellis Lumber, yeah. And uh, Joe was a good fiddle player, but he was living in uh, Charleston at the time. We cut that album, and he yeah. recorded with us. <laughs> All these musicians had to have a day job, didn't they? Yeah. Had to have a lumber company or something. Yeah. Um, I was talking to Hoyt Herbert the other day. Uh, he's busy making cabinets, you know. Yeah, oh, it runs a cabinet shop. Cabinet shop. It seemed like uh, there's not a whole lot of money to be made, but there's a lot of fun to be had, I think. Uh, I don't know uh, I don't know whether anybody's ever made uh, made it rich picking bluegrass, but 
Sure are a lot of good people. I know that. Well, I, we ne- we never gave up our day job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think uh, that's uh, that's for sure. What uh, everybody recommends is don't give up your day job before uh, before you make that first million at least. That's right. Yeah. You've been listening to a special interview live at Leatherwoods podcast with Dan X Pageant and Jerry Edmondson and Sons on WGWG.org. We hope you've enjoyed this show. Tell your friends. Please come back and visit for more great interviews and bluegrass podcasts as more are added all the time. I'm JT Leatherwood letting you know that Dad said to make sure you don't forget your cars in the parking lot. <laughs>